0: This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. Welcome to our colloquium, Uh, I'm going to say next to nothing at the beginning, other than to introduce to you Chris Claremont, who is a legend in comics history, and as many of you know, uh, you know, one of the masterminds for shaping the the X-Men's trajectory in particular, but that hardly does justice to the range of what he's doing, and these two have questions about a number of his projects, so I'm going to let them talk about those as they go along. This is Jeff Long, uh, who's a staffer at the Gambit uh, Games Lab and is a former alum of the CMS program. And this is Lon Lee, who is uh, f- just finishing up her master's thesis with uh, through CMS. And they're going to be the central questioners <clears throat> today. I'm going to take a moderator's prerogative to jump in from time to time. But uh, I'll turn it over to the two of
1: them. Ladies first.
2: <clears throat> um, so I've been a long time fan and by long time I mean since I was 12 and I'm only 27 now Um, but in the sort of long history of your work with um, the X-Men and I was looking through some of your older interviews I guess I wanted to start out with you say that the X-Men feels like home to you and it's always this sort of, it's one of your favorite, it's your favorite, you always come back to it. Mm -hmm. And what is it about that universe and those characters and that story that has sustained you for so long across your career?
3: Well, firstly I I have to say thank you for the opportunity to be here. Uh, Speaking as a liberal arts graduate Whose bachelor's is in acting, with a minor in political theory. Don't figure. Don't how that works. I have no idea. After all this time, it's it's rather daunting to to sit up here at, at MIT and and uh, be the object of attention for something other than you know saying some, rude things on the on the walking down the street. Uh, so thank you for the opportunity. I hope not to let you down. feeble attempts at humor notwithstanding. We could heckle
2: you if it makes you
3: feel more comfortable. Oh, that happens and that I could I can get that at home unfortunately.
2: <laughs>
3: with with uh, 11-year-olds it, it's it's the cost of doing business. Um Coming back to the X-Men, especially at this spring, is it's an interesting juxtaposition because there's a part that feels very much like you're coming back home again, coming back to people you've known for a good long while, picking up aspects of their life that, that are pretty much where you left them. But there's also the sense that you're turning away from the world outside. This is a safe zone in a way. It's, it's characters that I love very much, that I've worked with very much, that I, I'm, I'm surprised to discover I'm not done telling stories about. And I'm eager to do, to get back to that and to start on that. But at the same time, there is an element of wondering how it's going to work out. You know, it, it's, there's, it's, it's, it's mixed and as much as, as intriguing and fascinating as it is, a little nerve-wracking, because you wonder, is it going to be as good as it was? <clears throat> will it have the same effect on the audience as it did? If it's a different effect, will it be a positive one or a negative one? Um, in a very real sense, am I, the writer, as good as I was? Am I better? Am I not? It's all an experiment, and because I'm working with characters and a reality that are familiar to me and with whom the audience has very strong and impassionate opinions, it's going, it, for good and bad reasons, everybody's looking. There is no way to do this and keep a low profile. So the plus and minus is its center stage. Now it's up to me to do something fun with it. And that, that's the fun and the challenge.
1: I wanted to start by kind of giving the, the context of things. So I know that you were in your early 20s when you first started writing for comics, right? OK um, can you talk a little bit about how you, you know, got your start in the industry, like how your school experience and all that? Tell us a story.
3: Once upon a time...
4: <laughs> well, Bard... I didn't
3: say a true story. I, what makes you think any word of this is true? <laughs> Bard had... Uh, Bard was... had a rather unique approach to to uh, academia in those days. Uh, Partly to save on heating bills, but partly because one of the academic structure uh, element, one of the elements of, the, of their academic structure, was that the school would close from spring, from Christmas break to the beginning of March, and in those two months, which were considered field period the undergraduates were expected to go out and get a job related to their major their major subject and the policy the feeling of of the professors were were that in addition to the the academic instruction you would receive in in the in the school semesters you would go get out and get practical work experience in your field, in something related to your field, that would would build up, w- that would enable you to utilize what you'd learned in class and hopefully lay a foundation upon which you could build once you graduated. Um, the the program ran into the realities of of academic life in the in the sixties, namely that that it required the school you didn't get out you didn't end your semester until the beginning of July, and as most kids were pointing out to the um administration, that didn't leave a whole hell of a lot of time in the summer to earn some money to pay for next year, and all the jobs were taken so they they My third year, they scaled it out and went back to a traditional two weeks at Christmas and then closing down uh, at Memorial Day. But in my first field period, um, I essentially went to work for Marvel as a gopher. They're called interns now. It's a very respectable position. Back then, it was a, uh, you know, I was just this this fool college kid who'd work for free. They didn't believe it. They weren't going to pass it by. And I was an office jobs, jobs body. And it was a smaller office, so it, by the end of the two months, I was sort of the go-to assistant secretary, uh, handling fan mail, answer, dealing with uh, slush submissions, um, running errands for for Stan, for Roy Thomas, for all, and just being a general pain in the ass to the, art, to the artists who were working in-house. And from that, I made the contacts that, that enabled me over the next few years to just start sending in proposals, ideas, stories, pitches, plots. Here's a great plot. God, get him out. And finally, okay, look, I, I haven't got time to write this. You write this. The writer is busy. We need it tomorrow. And going home and writing a 17-page script overnight, which oddly enough you can do when you're 24. Oh, <laughs> well, actually, you know, it's because you have no conscious awareness of a the need to sleep and b that you can't do it. It's just wow, I'm doing it. Let's go. Um, and one step <laughs> leads to another. But from that that period, I. From that beginning, I made the contacts that that I bugged the living daylights out of once I got out of college and came down to New York to work as an actor. Political theory just wasn't wasn't fun in the Nixon administration. (laughs) It just, (laughs) there was no joy (laughs) in Mudville. Uh, And eventually, I got a job on staff as an editorial assistant which then became an assistant editor, which then became associate editor. Um, Who knows if I'd stuck around, I might have made editor-in-chief like the following week since everybody else did. (laughs) We were going through a period of expansion and turnaround with great enthusiasm and people were just walking out the door like nobody's business and going over to D.C. because their checks didn't bounce. It was a more raucous day. But that's... But at the same time, I was writing every day and sending out stories, prose stories, sending out stuff for Marvel, doing pitches to everyone I could think of uh, in, and throwing essentially bits and pieces up at the ceiling to see what would stick, which is in then and now, I suspect, how you do it as far as getting... Making some sort of headway as a writer, or and um, as I said, eventually I got hired, stuck around, went freelance. Uh, the industry then crashed. Um, the economy then crashed. But things got better, and it, it then the X Men came along, and and things got really interesting. No, only in the sense that, that when it happened, it was Len Wein created the series with, with Dave Cockrum. And it was a throwaway. It was a series that had never sold when, even when you had Roy Thomas and Neil Adams drawing it. It, it did well, but once they left, the sales crashed again. So there were no expectations whatsoever. Partly it was done to keep Marvel's hold on the character name. Partly it was done just to see what would happen. And their feeling was we had nothing left to lose. You know, we wanted to keep Dave Cockrum busy, we being Marvel. Um, Len wrote the first issue. He was, he'd structured out the second issue, which Dave was drawing. But then he decided it was, he, he, he was fed up with being Editor-in-Chief, so he went freelance, took four monthly titles as, as his severance, uh, writing four monthly titles, but he didn't have time to do the X-Men, which was bi-monthly. And I'd been bugging him and hanging out at all the, the plot conferences since he started, so he said, you want to do it? And because I, the chance to work with Dave was was irresistible, I said, hell yes. And away we went. Neither of us thought it it had much of a future. We just wanted to have a lot of fun while it lasted. And consequently, we did not say no to any idea that came into our heads and any perception of things that came into our heads. We just wanted to see what looked great, what worked, and build from that. So, okay, we got... we. We saved Cheyenne Mountain in the first story. Okay, what are we going to do for an encore? Well, we have a fill-in for an encore. Then, well, let's, let's have a, a battle on a satellite in space, or orbiting the Earth. Okay, that's fun. Sentinels in, in Central Park at Christmas time. What could be more fun? And let's turn Jean Grey into somebody really cool.
5: <laughs>
3: <laughs> like, why not have a woman character who's really powerful? I mean, as opposed to the Invisible Girl. (laughs) So we did it. And one thing came to another, and, oh, yeah, by the way, let's have Professor Xavier haunted by this alien. Well, what kind of alien? Well, a really cute alien, because, you know, all the best aliens are really cute. And then she could come to Earth. Hey, that sounds cool. Then what? I don't know. We could blow up half of New York City. Okay. (laughs) Okay. No, I mean this is we're batting ideas back and forth. We're, we're you know, there's a scene we drew where we're sitting, are sitting in Washington Square, doing a plot, and um, it was actually a real event. We were sitting there talking, Dave sketching, you know, figuring out. I'll put this in the story, and that was very much what our life was like, and out of that came. The whole conflict with the shi'ar and and saving the universe and 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 we had a suddenly we had a book that was part superheroes and part horror and part science fiction and part adventure and and part Star Trek meets the day the Earth stood still meets you know fun, fun on Forty Second Street. And for us, it was just a treat because we, we, we wanted to do stuff we would enjoy reading. And our attitude was if we enjoyed it, maybe the audience would feel the same way. And oddly enough, it worked. And in those days, the structure was so backward that it took us six months to get sales figures. So we didn't even know we had a hit until we were six, three or four issues into it. And by then, okay, first issues always do well. Holy cow, this is doing really well. And then suddenly we were eight issues into it and we realized, you know, this is not, they're not fooling here. People are actually buying this book. But Dave can't draw any faster. <gasps> okay, we'll just keep going and see what happens. Maybe, it, And then Dave moved on and John Byrne took over and basically he had one month bi-monthly and then we went monthly and we had never looked back. But that was the fun of it. We were essentially making it up as we went and, and not really caring whether it was right or not. It, just, it was what we felt worked and hoped that the, our enthusiasm and our delight and our instincts would carry over to the audience. And we lucked out.
2: Um, Just continuing on that theme. Um, So I've read a lot of – not a lot, but some criticism of your work as being too melodramatic and that the stories are in very epic terms. That's exactly what I like about it, though, um, personally. But um, how do you feel about comic books as a medium? And like the different sort of genres that have come about, especially in terms of superheroes, you have that sort of every-man superhero sometimes that pops up. And um, I guess what I'm sort of asking is, like, what was it for you and this story, and sort of those dramatic terms in which the, you wrote the story that really was that a part of the, the sensibility of the comic book at the time?
3: I think the, the simplest answer was I just wanted to see what would happen next. Um, it, and I'm a drama queen. <laughs> I liked being center stage. That, that was what was fun about acting. Um, scared the living daylights out of me, but, but I liked it. And it's hard to do that when you're a writer. You sit alone in a room and you stare at your... In those days, your IBM's electric... <laughs> and you went tap tap tap, and pages popped out, and you sent them away. And if you were lucky, a book got published eventually. But there's no one jumping up and saying "woohoo." Um, it was it was a way of of making it fun. But I think the answer is that that comics like. Any form of literature certainly, and like any form of of commercial public entertainment, theater, movies, you're reaching from the writer to the audience, and you want a response. You want, uh, ideally, you want applause. But if nothing else, you want people in the seats. You want people to to read, to listen. To take in the information, to if they like it, that's wonderful. If they don't like it, why don't they like it? So I can f- process the information, see if it's any good, factor it into the work, and come up with something that will win them over next time. Um, it's it's a way of communicating, and but of of putting stuff out there and 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 seeing how it works, of performing with words as opposed to with, with actions, whether how it gets described, the form it takes to get there, whether it's mystery or science fiction or romance or uh, books of scientific history, or unscientific history, for that matter. Uh, doesn't matter. It's it's a way of of reaching your audience and ideally provoking a positive reaction, and then moving on from there to see what happen to literally see what happens next, whether in fiction or nonfiction, and that's the essence of of uh, to me writing.
1: But you said that you had a, a six month turnaround time in your actual statistics based on your mm-hmm. sales, right? So one, didn't that drive you nuts? And two, how do you see the acceleration of like instant feedback numbers almost now? And what do you see the impact of that being on the the industry as a whole? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yes.
3: <laughs> it's, you know, and it used to be that the, the train from, New York took a day to get here the you know there were no cars you had covered wagons going west uh you crossed the Atlantic with sailboats um it It is what it is you have to deal with it and move on uh and find a way to if possible turn it to your advantage uh the The disadvantage is that you have. No time to let things settle in. The the reader is so conditioned to see, decide whether they like or dislike, respond, move on, that it's like, wham, you're gone. You're gone. You can't say, wait, there's better stuff coming. Well, I'm sorry, I'm over here now. It's the reader is moving faster than the, than the book, uh, which is a real pain in the neck. Um, but you have to learn to cope with it. Um, and if possible, maybe come up with a story or a way of selling the story, presenting the story, that might force the reader to slow down a step or two and think wait a minute, let me look at that again. Let me see that that story again. Let me hear it again. There, But by the same token, that isn't restricted to the present day. Of when back, in the, back in the day, there was a very famous incident where a critic for, I can't remember, can't remember which paper, went to see 2001, A Space Odyssey. And he panned it totally. He just went home, ripped ripped its head off, moved on. A week later, he went back and saw it again. And the next day, in the Herald Tribune, published a retraction. Apologized to Stanley Kubrick, apologized to the readers and said, this is a brilliant film. This film is so unlike any other film I've ever seen that I went expecting to see something else and I judged it on those terms. And the reason I judged it on those terms is I could not think of any way to relate to it, to incorporate it into my, my, my mind as an audience. So to me it was a failure. But I couldn't get it out of my head. I couldn't get the imagery out of my head. I couldn't get the story out of my head. It would not go away. So I went back and saw it again. And the pieces fell into place. And I realized that this film was not meeting my expectations because it was demanding that I meet its expectations. I come up to its level, not it would play down to mine. And as I did that, I began to see what was making it work. And that was a rather, it was extraordinary because you don't hear critics apologizing and, see, and restating things for themselves. And I think on that level, you, you, that's kind of what you want is for someone to come to work and look at it with an open mind and judge it. And if they like it, that's wonderful. If they don't like it, okay, why don't you like it? Tell me why. And as I said, we find a way, maybe try and take it and use it to find a way to tell the story better, or maybe there's a middle ground. But it, again, it's always a form of communication, and the nice thing about today, as opposed to 30 years ago, is online there there are opportunities to exchange that communication, to engage in a dialogue. If, as a writer, you can resist the opportunity to go after people with brick bats, you know, which unfortunately happens online a lot. Uh, the interesting thing will be seeing where we're at 5 years from now or 10 years from now and what the next iteration of of communication cause and effect will turn out to be. It it's a process and the process is ongoing, which is infuriating, yes, but it's also really cool. Just
2: ask a question?
1: I
3: thought that was
2: mine.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I a follow up to yours. So oh.
6: that counts. Mm, sorry. What's the meaning <laughs> of life?
3: <laughs> well, we have some of those in this list. Airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow.
6: <laughs> African or
4: European? Damn! Thank
3: you. <laughs> I should have known.
2: Um, actually, so we're we're both very interested in your latest project, but I don't think everyone in the audience is aware of what it is. Could you tell us a little bit about what the X mens Forever, what this new project is?
3: Well, in 1991, Jim Lee and I started on Adjectiveless X Men, which uh, basically we did three issues and came to a parting of the ways. And I went off in my direction, and Jim went off in his direction, and he ended up at DC, and I ended up back at Marvel. But that's a story for a biography. Uh, and the X Men went on its way. And Mark Panacea, my editor at Marvel, and I were kicking around ideas last year. And one of the things I he suggested in the course of, of the conversation was, you know, let's see what happened next. What, do you have anything in your files about what you, you had planned to do after, you know, issue three? And did I have anything in my files? Yeah, I had like a f- pile of plots. Uh, that never that never got finished. Uh, so we bounced ideas back and forth, and and Marvel thought, you know, that could be fun. We pick up where we left off, exactly where we left off, and see. Take the take the audience on a tour of what Chris was going to do next, and see if it works. So we sat down. And. That's why Tom Grummett pulled out was was pulled out of uh, New Exiles abruptly because we had him on this and started putting together uh, Forever, which, as I said, picks up where X Men Three leaves off with the search for for Fabian Cortez and and the world the lives of the X-Men, as we'd started in 1991. The difference being that, for a purely practical realism sense, we decided that those three issues did not take place in 1991. They took place in January of 2009. And this is now eight days later. And we're going on from there the the interesting the, the challenge the the reality of the world that we live in in that series is that the subsequent 17 odd years of of uncanny techn- of uncanny history haven't happened yet it's a vastly different world and as a consequence the things that the questions that need answering that that raised them themselves as as we began batting ideas back and forth began to pop into place far more in a far more focused manner than than they had back in the day when I was first thinking them up one question being why are there so few mutants because this is this is pre-grants turn, uh, turn of the screw with, with billions of them. In, in those days, we only had a few dozen out of a population of six billion people. Why is that? And with each answer came a new question. With each new question, the, the conflict became more crystallized and focused. came, and we both began to realize, you know, we got something really interesting going on here, that that all of the presumptions on which uncanny had been based may not be valid. What if mutants are not the next generation? What if they're a dud? What if they're a false? Uh, a false turn in evolution. What if the X-Men, the characters in the X-Men, are not the harbingers of a future but are just lost souls in, in the evolutionary scheme of things? And where will that lead us? And again, with every answer, we got more and more intrigued to find out what where this would lead us. So we then put things together and pretty much right off the top began screwing with everybody's head because I could then look back over the issues and look at, say, we knew Storm had been, Storm last seen in Uncanny had been this 13-year-old then she goes off to Genosha and poof! She's an adult again. Comes back to the X-Men and poof! She's back to where she was five years earlier because that was the way Jim wanted to draw her. But what if that didn't work? What if that wasn't the way it was? What if Storm was different? We began pl- I began playing with that. And as you'll see fairly quickly in the run, There, there are all sorts of interesting surprises. Um, And the other very, and it's really twisted when writers say this, but one of the the nice things about the series is that we actually have mortality here. That Because we're not the, the we're not the benchmark series, because uncanny exists, all of our characters are at risk. We can actually have people die, and we in, intend to, because the characters need to... One of the nice things about the X-Men when it started, horrific as it sounds, was the death of Thunderbird. Why? Because it brought home to the X-Men, to these new characters, that this is not a life they can take for granted. These are not conflicts they can take for granted, that they are there is a risk. And you ha- and that said, the same. We were saying the same thing to the audience. These characters are not going to be here forever. Something could happen to them, any of them, at any time. Spock could die. Well, Spock got better, but you know, <laughs> Thunderbird didn't. Uh, now the well, now was the time to perhaps. Remind people of that and see if we can change the perception, the audience perception of the series that this is not a book, these are not characters, these are not situations that can be taken for granted. Yes, the X-Men will likely win, but will all the X-Men come out of it intact? You'll have to wait and see. And then you can raise what hell you like, we'll happily discuss it with you and argue till the cows come home, but whether or not we change it, this time we don't have to this time, if someone dies, we all may hate it deep down inside but that's the way it is
1: But what you're describing here kind of gets to the heart of, the, of one of the main characteristics of comics um, which, much like soap operas, comics are sort of corporate-owned folklore with a sort of a distributed authorship or distributed mm-hmm. you know, concept of authority. And it's constantly grappling with this notion of canon, like what did and what did not happen, what can be done and what can be undone. Um, so what do you see the, the, the strengths and weaknesses of that particular characteristic of the form?
3: Well, this, the strength is it gives everything a structure. The the weakness is that that there comes a point where you have you worry about the audience becoming cynical and saying oh yeah that they're never dead they'll bring Jean back they'll bring uh, Kitty back you know I the I mean I was really really pissed at Joss. For, for killing Kitty or for putting Kitty in that predicament at the end of X Men Forever, because I'm sorry, she was my trademark character. And, and you know, I'm, I can be as much of a fan geek as anybody else, especially when it's, it's my kid. But I also know why he did it, because that would be the one thing that no one would expect him to do. What pissed me off was I was planning to do exactly the same thing two months later.
5: <laughs>
3: but nastier. And I hate being upstaged. Um, but that's the problem is that that in the back of my head is in the back of everybody's head reading it is a knowledge. Oh yeah, they'll just bring her back. And it's true. That's the reality of, of, you know, they're never going to kill off Lois Lane, and Spider-Man can cut a deal with the devil to break up his marriage to Mary Jane. Though, I will confess that the thought that crossed my mind when that happened was, and Mary Jane feels about this, how? I mean, you don't consult with your wife before you File for the divorce with the devil. (laughs) You know, maybe she has other ideas. Um, But fortunately, that's not my book and I don't have to worry about it. That said, I don't know if anyone here remembers the, the pilot for Hill Street Blues back in the day. But at the end of it, two... Two cops, Hill and Renko, are shot down, bang, and left for dead. And they'd been set up throughout the whole pilot as, the, as two of the major viewpoint characters. They, they were the cool street cops. And you figured by the conventions of TV at the time, they're, the, they're the, like the stars, not realizing that actually it was, it was uh, the captain who was and the idea was that, that Bobby Hill, the black cop would survive and that Renko, the white cop would die. Well, the trouble is that, I um, can't remember, what's his face who played Renko? Liked the script. He liked the character. He didn't want to die. So it turned out they both lived and on went the series. But. The key to it was they w- the uh, the intent was to grab the reader by the throat right off the bat and say, look, they're cops. Their lives are at risk. Everybody is at risk. We can't, you cannot take anything for granted because in real life things happen. In fictional real life things happen. If you, you know, you get blindsided by event. The same applies here. You, you want to, the, ne, the necessity, to me anyway, is to, main, is to build and maintain a reality, a vision, where you're aware of the dangers of their lives and they're aware of the dangers of their lives. One of the things that were, and forgive me if you've heard this before, I've said I've we've been coming to grips with in this is Nick Fury walking in and saying to them right off the bat, we keep forgetting how young you all are. You've saved the world, you've saved the universe twice. And some of you are barely 14, 15 years old. Maybe it's time you started being kids and stopped being heroes. And Scott doesn't understand that. It's to Scott, it's like, you know, were the howling commandos any older when they saved the world in World War II? Fury's response, we learn from our mistakes, hopefully. You know, the whole point was that we did it so you wouldn't have to. But the key here is that they're kids. Many of them are kids. And even if you go beyond the X-Men and look at the new mutants, We're talking teenagers. Then you find yourself asking, you know, was Charlie really doing such a really nice thing? Lying to their, all the parents of the original team about what they were going to do with their lives? What he was going to put them through with their lives? And then carrying it on to a second generation and a third? What was his intent? And what is the impact of all of that on these kids as they grow up and move on? Can they move on? Or are they stuck in this box for the foreseeable future? And is there, is there a consequence? Is there a price they have to pay? Again, this is all, these are all elements that I didn't think of last time around. And part of the reason I didn't think of it last time around is I didn't have kids. Now I look at my boys and I think, you know, if they were mutants, if they found themselves in the X-Men situation, okay, if they bonded with Xavier and joined the club, and fought with the X-Men, willingly and enthusiastically and, and proudly, how would I feel about that as a Father, how would I explain this to their grandparents if something happened? What right had Charlie to do this to them and to me without leveling with all of us and allowing it to be a free decision? And what are the consequences for, the, for these kids when they grow up, if they grow up? And I suddenly, you know, this is fun. Thinking about this, figuring out where it leads, what the ramifications are, to me, that's drama. To me, that's, okay, where, you've got the challenge, now what? Well, now we, we get even, even nastier and, and force everybody to come to terms with this, one way or the other, and see who can, feels like they can go home again and who, who can't. And hopefully, at the same time, pre- present a story to th- that is entertaining and engrossing and irresistible to the readers. Because being a publicly owned company—well, actually, no, Marvel's private. Sorry, that's the goal. You know, you—it's public. Yeah. Oh, well, so it shows you what I know. <laughs> no, as a—I write for the—I write for myself to please my editor because he signs the vouchers. And to please the audience because they're buying the issues, guarantees it will still be around, and that I'll have work. so it's, it's a synergistic relationship, but at the same time, I want, you know, I want you guys to come back for more. And I speak it in a broadly general term, though I hope you'll all go out and buy the comic. Yes, we're ruthless in our desire to just drag in everybody we can.
2: Um, I'm really curious about. So you've shifted the story from the world of 1991 to 2009, Mm -hmm. and um, it's a very different world. We have had a lot of cultural shifts in that time where – it's post-9-11, mm-hmm. we're in Iraq, and mm-hmm. so the, our sensibility of surveillance has – our anxieties about surveillance have increased. Yep. And I'm really curious about what you're going to do with that, and especially because our expectations in media have changed. I mean, we've watched The Sopranos and Deadwood. There's a lot more sort of um, – Dexter is now on network television. Um, do you feel like that gives you more opportunity to be a little less family-friendly? Well,
3: in a very real sense, I don't think we were that family friendly back in the beginning. You know, the, it's just it's partly a matter of how you, how you stage the scene. Um, Walt Simonson drew an issue um, of X Men where you have an establishing shot. We're at Madeline Pryor's house in, Af- in uh, Alaska. And she's in bed. And you know, it's a big bed. And the side of the bed next to her is saggy and rumpled, and the, the sheets are up. But it's just there. You don't notice it. It's not, there's no big sign saying, the sheets are up. And then something happens, and she wakes up screaming, and she's wearing the shirt of a pair of PJs. And Scott runs in from the next room wearing the pants. <laughs> and if you want to add the pieces together, you can put two and two and two together. And bingo! They're sleeping together. Or, if you don't, you just read the scene and move on. It, the scene is there. The moment is there. The reality is there for anyone who, who wants to look at it. But it's not. we're not making a big deal out of it. It's, there's nothing really you can't get away with if you're willing to be a little artful and subtle about it. And maybe artfulness and subtlety is a knack that is out of style in comics because it's a little harder than, than just hitting the reader in the face with it.
1: But do you see that as... <sighs> There's a, a, a notion that after Tim Burton's 1989 Batman and after Frank Miller's you know, take mm-hmm. on Batman as well, the the entire comics industry shifted so that it's not, fam- like Lon said, like family-friendly or kid-friendly so much being written specifically for 18- to 34-year-olds. Um, but one of the things I thought was interesting about your announcement of uh, Gen Next, we'll mm-hmm. talk about that for a minute, is that that book feels like it's written to be a little bit younger. Mm-hmm. Um, but do you see... Do you see this as not so much a shift directly towards adult themes, but just the, this lack of subtlety and this lack of cross-generational writing? No, I, I
3: see Gen X is written for younger readers because you've got to start somewhere. And, you know, starting with a 45-year-old who's maybe feeling more cynical than not and, wants and is set in, in his or her ways as far as what they want to read is... Been, to crack. Well, it's been there, done that. You know, I want to, I you know, if I, can, if I can get a, if I can attri- intrigue a chunk of kids who like the story and will come back and read what happens next, well, you know, that's all to the better because they're going to be around for a while and they'll pass the word to their friends. Um, there's a reason why the the one of the dominant uh, one of the dominant sections in Barnes and Noble is is the young adult, because there are a lot of a lot of kids out there who want to read, who got hooked on reading, possibly by reading Harry Potter, but who want to who want adventure and want to see stories and characters that they like and want to come and give it a shot and quite frankly. Every other writer I know is doing dystopic uh, adult fantasy, or adult superheroes, where they're, they're all sort of quasi-drug-addicted slime. You know? Fine. You can do your thing. I'll do my thing. We'll see, we'll see what happens next. But I, ideally, what I wanted is, is characters and a story that will make the reader intrigued enough, eager enough, curious enough to come back for more. The thing with, with Forever is that I'm approaching it with more of an edge because I think the world that the X-Men are, are thrown up against now is defined by more of an edge. I don't see why the team relocates to a city and lives there and the city is happy. Good for them. But part of me is thinking, and what part of the federal government is happy to have a dozen superpowered characters affiliated with no one that we know of who have the capacity to save and or destroy the universe single-handed running around loose? Um, multinational superheroes, for that matter, who might have of loyalties to other co- to other countries and other beliefs. I mean, I w- found myself thinking the other day, and by what stretch of the I- imagination do I think va- Vladimir Putin would allow Colossus anywhere outside of continental Russia? You know, he's he's Russian. He should be in Russia. What's he doing in New York? You know, unless it's working at the Russian embassy. Um, it's, it's looking at the world as we are now and, and seeing how the X-Men integrate with it and then seeing what happens next. You know, in Fury's case, it's, it's he's, he's moved into the mansion because S.H.I.E.L.D.'s got to keep an eye on them. Why? Because they represent raw, unaffiliated power you know, the the White House is sitting there saying, these guys saved the universe. Why are we letting them run around loose? Yes, they saved the universe, but the flip side of that is they have the power to not save the universe, which means someone's got to keep an eye on them. We, and they're kids. We need a babysitter. But that's not, it, it, it's perhaps a laugh line, but it's also a very real concern because who's going to teach them? Who's going to show them which direction to go? Who's going to keep an eye on them in case they decide for themselves they want to make changes? Or they want to go somewhere else? Or they want to quit? Or they want to do this? You know, there are suddenly all these pieces that in the context of our world and the concerns of our world take on a whole different value and a whole different weight than they did, say, in 1990, where paradoxically, everything seems so much simpler. And, and, I mean, quite frankly, there's a reason why you have certain conservative commentators sitting up and saying, I miss the Soviet Union. You know, big, hulking political structure. But damn it if you knew where you stood. There was us, there was them. Everybody else sort of told the line because we kept the world safe between us. And now it's not a Soviet Union anymore. It's just us, and we're getting a lot of shit. And it's frustrating. And, you know, be careful what you wish for.
2: Um, so I have a question about um, th- your work with the X Men. Has always been the, the sort of the metaphor of mutation has always sort of been used as a way to talk about um, things like race, mm-hmm. sexuality. The sexuality is openly tackled, mm-hmm. um, class, things like that. And I really, I personally enjoyed a lot of the that aspect of social criticism that went on in the story, mm-hmm. um, and that's that seems to be one of the features of science fiction and fantasy, that there is a lot of social critique going mm-hmm. on. And um, I don't know if you have any insight on just be- – because especially it's become more and more popular, and what sort of sustains this as sort of this genre of choice, especially for these large trans-mediated narratives that – sprawl across all kinds of different media.
3: Well, I think part of it is you're, you're on the outside looking in. And, and you, you want to focus in on, on things that concern you as a writer and, and see if, if you can point the way to a resolution. Um, it's it's ideally telling a good story but grounding the good story in in elements of reality that are that are of concern you know I mean my I mean I go back and look at at pictures of me when I was a kid walking into, you know, going off to elementary school here in Florida and in California, dressed in shorts and wearing a blazer and 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 a tie and basically looking as I'd look going off to school in London. And getting the shit kicked out of me for it. Well, it's a totally different head. Uh, it's this it's finding a way to integrate to the world to this world to this country to this reality and then looking at it looking at the characters in the book and trying to see well how do we how do we translate that into into a, i guess a broader picture and, and find a way to reach through them to readers today and, and get them to look at, at the challenges we face and, and the questions we ask and, and identify can, the X, can these characters in the X-Men find a way to resolve them or not resolve them and, and through them help the reader with the same challenge or not. I mean the the thing is that that with with X-Men Forever we have Jean and Scott and Logan. Well, it's it's a love triangle. Here we go, right off the bat. She's in love she's she loves Scott but she's in love with Logan. How's that going to work out? How does she want to work it out? Logan has no problems. He'll just you know, worst comes to worst, he'll punch Scott in the nose and we'll gather her up and he'll move on. You know, Jean and Hugh Jackman together again. Um, Jean has guilt. Well, then you try and take it to the next step and the next step and the next step. And and through the way she deals with this or and, he, and the men deal with this, perhaps find ways that, that the readers can Recognize and, and identify with the 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 challenge, the question, the answers themselves, and and spark a discussion. Um, something's going to happen fairly right off the bat that that's going to call into question everything Wolverine, Kitty believes about Wolverine and and everything she believes in him, and how she deals with that is going to be a challenge, as it will be for Nightcrawler because he's. Wolverine's best friend. Um, and they're all going to have to deal with Sabretooth because he's the dad. Wolverine's dad, which they never they never thought before. And now it's like, holy, ah! You know, it was better when we didn't know who you were. <laughs> How do we yell at him? I don't know. Well, he's blind. Yeah, but he can still kill you. And perfectly, perfectly willing to. Um... But again it's it's moving sideways to to a book like like Wanderers," which is a totally different head, which is historical fantasy, which is set you know we're talking eighth century England um, you know and and Normans and well, Norsemen and uh, Englishmen. here we are. um. And demons and and miss and fan fantastic characters, but the essence is you've got two guys you've got a gal you've got a mom and a dad, and it's how they all fit together and and one of the, the through lines in this is that the the young hero is in, in love with the the young Asian girl and she loves him and they keep hitting speed bumps and how do, they, how do they deal with it? How is he going to get from the middle of the story to the end of the story to the next volume and will they end up together? Will they end up apart? This is it's dramatic but it's life and answering the questions hopefully it a it'll be fun for the readers, but B it will bring you to a satisfactory resolution. But again, this is this is what we do. It's we take good characters, we put them in bad situations, and then we make it worse. And the the goal is to see how they come out at the other end, and make sure that that whatever happens along the way when they do come out that other end the audience feels satisfied that they've had a good ride that that the story is worth the effort and the time and hopefully that they they feel that the characters have fulfilled expectations and and come to a good end and then Next volume, we start all over again. Mm-hmm. Except worse.
1: So one of the things that we talk about a lot here are the, the characteristics of each particular media form and what set them apart from each other. right? So one of the things that you do particularly, uh, frequently, uh, is the thought bubble. Yes. But you don't see that so much anymore. You, why is that? Why do you not see the thought bubble anymore? <sighs>
3: Policy. There is a a perception, an editorial perception, that comics should be approached as film, and you don't hear, very rarely, thought bubbles in film. I mean, yes, you'll have, you might have a voiceover, in which case that functions as the vo- as the thought balloon, but for the most part, what you have is physical action and dialogue and comics should imitate or should echo film. My personal answer to that is, well, the trouble is film has movement and speech, which we do not have. We have written dialogue and in on in the soundtracks, not on, on uh, the page. Yes. Uh, we don't even have the, the intonation that you can do in prose by saying, he spoke warily. He, as he spoke, he cocked his eye and thought. Yeah, action. And here you've got a guy and a balloon saying something. Except that if you do that, then you're left with the awkward situation of, I'm just going to turn my head to the left and look at the front door and move out because you really scare the living daylights out of me. You know, whereas the thought would be, I'm getting the hell out of here because this guy scares me. If you say it aloud, which you need to say aloud because you've got to establish why the character has, is heading for the door, suddenly... Why are you giving it all away to the guy who's standing right over there? Why don't you just say you're scaring me? Stop it. You know it it gets it gets a little awkward and and sometimes it feels a little silly. On the other hand, there is a perception that that writers in comics, many of whom wish to write in film, have to think in those terms. Uh, the, the problem is, that, as I said, we don't have the ability of the actor to emote with his or her body and let the silence of expression. I mean, in Wolverine, in X-Men 1, there's this classic moment where Rogue looks over and asks, as they're driving away from town, she asks Logan, does it hurt? She doesn't need to say what she's talking about, we know exactly what she's talking about, she's talking about the claws. And he looks at her and he looks at his hand and his face gives you a sense of how he feels and he says, every time. That's all you need. Why? Because you can hear her tone of voice and his tone of voice and you can see it in the way he's reacting and the picture is conveying it, the moving picture is conveying it. But if you put it on a page and try to block that out, you end up with five panels of her and him and then you need a panel to show him reacting with this face and, react, and the hand and this and that and suddenly the whole page is done and you have does it hurt every time. And it might work or it might not but in other circumstances a thought balloon might, you know, does it hurt? Yes, move on think, 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 or not. It's the different media. They have to be defined and dealt with in different terms. And that's why any absolute rule of that nature is, I think, self-defeating because it misses the the character, the writer, the situation that might be the exception that proves the rule, the exception that, that, that... can find a way to make this work. My, my way of thinking is that, that technically you shouldn't have any kind of restriction. You should just let the story tell and figure out as a reader, as an editor, which works, which doesn't, and, and turn it loose on the marketplace and then and see if your answer comes there in terms of whether the story sell the st- story sells or not. And I don't mean in a commercial sense, but in, in in a literary sense.
1: So, are they letting you use thought balloons in your
3: new books? I'm writing them in the script. Whether they last to the printed page is a whole other thing entirely. But also, you end up thought balloons are private, speech is public. You know, you if if you have something that a character is wi- saying to themselves, then you have readers writing in and saying, "Why is he talking out loud?" And if you do it as a caption, it looks even dumber because the other the other the other rule that gets broken every now and then is you're not the, there's a, a definite dissatisfaction with captions with narrative but that's the problem with lasting a long time in this business <laughs> you see things come you see them go and and hopefully you try to be in a position to run them over with a truck every now and then. (laughs) But what it comes down to is whatever works. If it works, use it if it doesn't work, dump it. But I I just I have a problem with 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 strict rules like that. Because there's always that exception that that (coughs) upends it. And and if you ignore that, then then you lose, you possibly lose a really cool moment or a really cool story.
2: Um, so I actually got to take a look at uh, Jeff's questions before we came in here, and Ooh. it turns out we both really like Gambit. And
3: <laughs> I was wondering about that the the Gambit Center. It's like you know. Um, <laughs>
2: My question, though, is um, you left pretty soon after you introduced him. So it was other people who developed his backstory, gave him all this drama. And they're all wrong. Oh, yeah, and that's what I wanted to ask you about. Um, But one, how did it feel just to, like, you didn't get to continue his story and to see other people developing that and also your, your own plans for where he would go?
3: Well, I didn't read the book for about four or five years for precisely that reason. You just, you know, I wanted to break. I wanted to do other things. I wanted to tell other stories. Um, but one of the things we're doing with Forever is even though in the first arc of stories he looks as he did in one, two, and three, we have a new look for him. I mean, he's not a superhero guy with big hair, he's a thief. And so we're actually going to have him dressed rather nicely, you know? Wears a th- he wears a dark suit, maybe a pink shirt. we're not sure. Just want to see which button we end up pushing. But he looks totally respectable. And the idea is, I, I actually see him much more towards a, a James Bondish kind of character someone and with um, the ability to to slip in and out of any situation. I mean, he's a thief. His bedrock basis is he can get in and out of anywhere. And if he's working with with Aurora, watch your wallets, because they'll they'll just rip, you know, strip you dry, and you won't even notice. Whereas for example sabertooth is a completely different head in that he's essentially a tiger in 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 the living room and he may be a friendly tiger he may be you know a nice tiger but he's still there and he's still a predator and he's not domesticated in any way, shape, manner or form, and even if you can't take him for granted and and the idea with with him is you're always there's a part of you that's always afraid because you know if he decides to come after you, you're dead, even Kitty believes that, and she's intangible you know she's already sixty percent ghost but you know, in the back of her head is if there's a way to kill her, he'll find it. And if he does, it's, there's no, there's no looking back. That's the, the, for me, the, the neat thing about these characters is to find the things that, that make them scary and make them dangerous. And then how do you deal with it? How do they deal with it? How can we deal with it? Um, you know, here's, Jean, who's, as far as we know, died twice, and she's, you know, and now she's on the brink of losing the thing that makes her, that gave her, that that gave her a center, that gave her the, the, the whole reason for doing things, is about to go up in smoke. And what is that? What what effect will that have? Where will that lead her? And Scott, at this point, I don't even want to think about. You know, discovering that Charlie's one that Charlie's betrayed him, and two that everything he's, he th- thought he believed in is wrong. That's that's a hard thing to to come to terms with. But the 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 fascinating thing, the hopefully intriguing thing, is that they're conflicts that we all, at some point or other, come come to ter- come to face, at one on one level or another. And, and if, again, we can weave a link between Reader and X-Men and make the stories of the characters about life in the best sense of the word and how to cope with life, then that, that to me, that's a lot more fun than just going and punching out giant supervillain robots, even though that has a certain charm and, and enthusiasm to it. But that's, they're people, that's the story of people. And whether, you know, it's it's a bunch of of high school students flying around on broomsticks, flying around the, down the Thames on broomsticks to save the empire, or a bunch of mutants flying down the Hudson River to save New York. It, the idea is to bind the readers in and, and to make them care about these X-Men as passionately as, as they cared about the kids in Hogwarts, and then see what happens next.
0: So, in, in the interest of binding the readers, or at least the listeners, in, it's probably a good moment for us to open the floor for some questions from the audience. So, if people, is there a, a, a movable mic that we have, or uh, how how is this? Ah, there it is.
6: Great. One, two, two.
0: Okay. So, who wants who wants in?
3: Uh, first, thank you for for the talk. well, um, oh, thank you for inviting me, and thank you for listening. <laughs> you did. You you mentioned a bit um,
4: <clears throat> some uh, when talking about about thought bubbles, some of the the effects of trying to tell a story on a page. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the things I'm really curious comics both have a, a very long arc. You can deal with ep- you know episodes and is- issues coming out over a long period of time, um, but there's also a very strict. Uh, format for the the comic issue itself and I'm curious if you've ever wanted to experiment or stretch that or if that's been something if you there was something you could change about even even the length or the content or the, the you know regular division of panels if that's something as a writer
5: uh,
3: I suspect if I was Frank Miller I'd have a whole different answer because frank being as passionate and talented sorry jealousy pure jealousy a writer as he is an artist can do that in in my case the reality is you've got a 22 page story in a marvel format figure 100 panels if you're lucky Oh, f- start to finish. Um, in something like Wanderers, it's it's 46 pages, so it's a graphic novel, theoretically. Um, though I've I've got another project that the uh, a colleague and I are talking about where we're talking 175 pages. I, God knows who's going to draw it, but. Uh, you know, that's, that's, who that's a lot. You, the format, I mean, if I was thinking of writing a, a screenplay, I'd be dealing with a reality that, practically speaking, we're talking 90 minutes to 125 Uh very rarely will you. Well, maybe not so rarely these days. But films ideally don't like to go. You don't like to see films go to, to two and a half hours, three hours, uh, unless it's a Tarantino. Um, but that's that's the frame. The the one place you can you can write to your heart's content is a novel. Not you just start at the beginning and go to the end and and pray you find someone who likes it. I mean. Buy it. Uh, everything else you, you deal with the form, and um, I think in the. I think the most frustrating, aspect in terms of, modern comics reality is the. Advent of the trade paperback, well the trade reprint, where. In Marvel's case, it used, there used to be six issues, now it's five. You notice many series are now all five five issues each, whereas they used to be six because that, it saves them an, an issue of printing at the back end. So each volume now of, of that recaps a series will be in five issue five issue. Well, a year ago with, with uh, Exiles it was six issues, six issues. Trade. Six issues, trade. With X-Men, it'll be five. Um, I'm sorry. No, it'll be six. Sorry. Six issues. Uh, no, I'm sorry. My, the rules keep changing every other week. That's why you get confused. But um, you deal with it. It's, it, it's something. I mean, the, the intriguing thing I found was when I went back and looked at my stuff, in the original run, we generally had two-part stories, maybe a three-part story. I went back and looked at Stan's stuff and the battle with with Galactus was an issue and a half. You know, there's one issue set up with the surfer coming to Earth, then Galactus showed up, they fought, then there was the, the the conclusion of the battle, which ended halfway through the book, and then Johnny went to college. Wow! <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be, there There are writers today who, just that story alone would be two volumes of trades. You know, ten issues. So, I, I like the idea of keeping things more focused and, and more intense. Get on, say your piece, get off. Uh, and and ideally, hopefully, leave the audience. Ah, what? No, you can't stop here. What's ha- coming next? Well, two weeks later, bing. Now, you may have an ongoing story arc like Dark Phoenix that lasts for a year, but it's told in two-issue, three-issue increments so that the... A, you change focus along the way so that it isn't always about the same character, the same conflict, the same thing. It's build, the storm is building to a point where it moves into center stage and takes over. But you also give every, all the other characters a fair amount of room to come on, say their piece, have their moment, move off, move ahead. So it, it's, it's very much, to pardon the cliche, a shared universe. And, and you try and integrate it and proceed from there. Um,
4: so it seems to me that one of the benefits of having a, a bunch of different writers, a bunch of different titles, um, and having a, a shared canon is that it enables the occasional reader, the the casual reader, where I don't I don't manage to pick up every issue, or heaven help me, every issue of everything. Um, but with this book, with with X Men Forever, you're going to be um, in a different um, universe, mm-hmm. different set of canon, um, and drawing on a lot of the context that was present 15 years ago what are you what are you doing in order to enable the the casual reader to to understand your book and not get it intermingled in their mind with with the other things going on
3: well the most fundamental means of doing that is that Nobody here looks anything like anybody there. They will all be different visual. It's a totally different set of visual iconography. Um, and a totally, one hopes, different set of story, story, circumstances, and antagonists. The other thing that, that we we decided right off the bat, Mark and I, is that we don't want to use as much as humanly possible anything I've done before. Any characters, any circumstances, any adversaries, possibly the Hellfire Club, will come back, but if they do, it's going to be redesigned, Um, holding on to the essential core idea of the club, but presenting the characters in a totally different visual, as totally different visual icons solely to avoid that kind of confusion. But beyond that, it's you know the, the Emma here won't be the Emma in X-Men. the the Cyclops here won't be the Cyclops in X-Men, uncanny rather. And after that you just have to hope that the stories themselves and and the 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 visual evocation of the world will not will will suffice. Now, if I have Paul Smith do three issues in, in forever, and then he goes over and does three issues of Uncanny, I think then we'll all throw up our hands in disgust and kind of, oh, God, you know. But that's, that's editorial, that's, that's publishing, that's not creative. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> um, but the key is that to hope ultimately that the, the, the voice that's established for the book, for this book, is distinctive enough and individual enough that, that there won't be any confusion between Forever or Uncanny. And that's the, that's the core creative challenge, to see if, if, that, if that's the way we come across. Because, yeah, a whole generation of readers has come in and grown up without any active knowledge at all of, of the, the world and the stories we're, we're referencing. Well, that in a way is, is good because that gives us a free reign to win them back, win them over with what's coming. And we don't have to depend on if you read the old stuff, you'll love the new stuff. Well, the old stuff is there as a foundation. But what matters is what we build on top of it. At, that got us to this point. What happens now rests solely on our ability to, to synergize all the, the things I've been talking about in terms of character and, and concept, and build a whole new structure on top of it to see if, if we can entice and hold not only the readers who, who remember the old stuff and are coming back to give it a second look, but whoever out there who hasn't read the X-Men, those X-Men, and want to give it a try, and perhaps even a whole bunch of readers who've heard about the X-Men but never actually given comics a shot, well, it's easier to buy one comic than to buy forty five of uncanny crossing over with X-Men forever crossing over with this with not forever, but X-Men whatever, and you know the 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 multi the multi-generational crossover that's occurring in in the mainstream universe and see you know, as I said, the, the challenge is to. With every issue, come up with a with a story, a conflict, and a resolution that, if the reader gives it a chance, will grab them, pull them in, and make them want to see what happens next. And that's that. That's the the eternal and never-ending crapshoot.
0: One of the things that I like about X-Men is that the villains, uh, Magneto in particular, is often more interesting than the heroes. Uh, yeah, that's why we killed being. him off. Um, did this bother you to make the
3: to make the villains more interesting and sometimes more th- sympathetic than the heroes? No, Blofeld was always more fun than Bond. <laughs> I mean, you know, Khan was so much more interesting than Kirk. You half of Shakespeare's plays are built around the villain. Why? Because the villain is the more interesting character. Why? Because he's the active character. He's the one who's setting everything in motion. The hero is reactive. The hero is trying to to stop him, preserve the status quo, do this, do that. You know, if you watching the Scottish play, you're starting out with a hero, watching him turn into the villain, and then getting scared stiff of him by the end. That's the fun. You know, the the thing, you know who the X-Men are. They're they're stiffs. Sorry. They're heroes. I mean, the FF are heroes. Spidey is a hero. But Mephisto, hmm, what's it, I mean, why did he cut this deal with Spidey? What's he get out of it? What's the end game here? What does Doctor Doom really want? I mean, aside from the fact that He's so much more fun than Reed in the movie, you know. Why is Sue looking to Reed and not to Doom? Well, that's a whole different question. You know. Look at Jean. Scott's over here. Hugh Jackman's over there. Which way does she go? <laughs> End of story. Well, but that's that's life imitating art, or art imitating life, depending on your point of view. Um, the villain is the, chara- is, is the definer of, of the conflict. The heroes resolve the conflict by overcoming this charismatic, dynamic, scary, active. Because in comics, the villains are the active characters. The heroes are the reactive characters. And oddly enough, if you look through the X-Men, Sabretooth is not a hero. Hmm. There are, Xavier is about to find himself in a position where he may not be a hero. There suddenly half the, a good chunk of the, Kitty is in a position where she may be at a crossroads between being a hero and not. Um, Once we throw them all up into the air, it's, it, to me it becomes interesting because you can't take them for granted you can't assume so and so will survive so and so will proceed according to oh they won't they wouldn't dare do this wanna bet you know we killed off jean remember and we'd have left her dead if we could have gotten away with it well now we're going to do something even nastier you know but you'll have to read the book for that that's the thing. You, 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 want to keep, you, you want to keep challenging the reader and confounding their preconceptions. Because if you do it right, they'll sit there and go, oh my God, I never saw that coming. What the What, what, what is that SOB going to do next? He wouldn't dare. Oh, would he? Oh, God. No, I'll read this other book. That'll be safe. <laughs> but this book is interesting. See I mean it's it you you've got to keep you've got to keep the reader on their toes and a little bit infuriated because you want them coming back and coming back and coming back um because that's the only way we can stay you know that's that's how we reach you
0: um i want to press a little bit about your comment about, you know, the villains being more interesting because they're more active. Can you, can you really not imagine an active hero? I mean, is
3: that a... No, the heroes are reactive. They don't, they don't take the initiative.
4: So, so do you think that's actually a, a, is that a rule of the genre?
0: No, I think it's a a rule of drama. I think
3: it's actually a rule of drama. Mm -hmm. I mean, if, if you look... Again, Henry V, the most classic of, one of the most classic of Shakespeare's hero plays, Henry doesn't start the war. It's like the French start messing around, and it, uh, the, the whole opening speech about the tennis balls—you know, um, with their challenge to Henry over over the inheritance—it's him reacting to something the French have done. Um, Beckett. If you look at Becket, he is a reactive character. He, he is Henry's friend. He does, he looks after the king, he looks out, you know, he's quite happy being Chancellor. Now suddenly he's Archbishop of Canterbury, and he's forced to confront his God, his faith. That's reactive. You know, Henry's the Henry's the one who makes him the archbishop who then says, well, no one rid me of this meddlesome priest. It's, it's the, the interesting and infuriating challenge of drama that, that the, the the hero is the one who has to deal with the mess. The, the villain, the antagonist, is the one who creates, who, who makes the mess, and therefore is the, the initiator of the action. Quo.
5: even in a situation like The Matrix or The Prisoner where the status quo is the dystopia and the hero is trying to overthrow it?
3: Who put him there? Would he have done anything if he hadn't been put there?
5: <laughs>
3: He's reacting to a reality that surrounds him. Well, I mean, and, and if you talk about Matrix, if Neo had had his way, he'd still be stuck in that little bubble, you know, working at the bank. You know. But, but, but. Oh, a fight! <laughs>
4: Oh, wait See? a minute! You always have to have, you always have to have an origin. I mean, there's, there always has to be some origin story for a bad guy. Bad guys are almost never just like I exist because I am evil, and I'm evil not. because I exist. They have something, right? That made them react,
3: right? Too. Yeah.
4: But I mean, no in one that way, set out to
3: be a bad guy.
4: But in that way, it, our, and in Magneto's case, you have heroes, someone who set out to be a good guy. But in he that just that went. Case, isn't everybody equally reactive? Like, I mean. Aren't you just saying that people are reactive instead of being active? Like this seems like it's not a very useful conversation to be having on that. Well, like it, it, if everybody is just acting the same, you know.
3: There you go. <laughs> well, I don't. I'm not the okay. religious person, so I, I, you know, no. But uh, that, w- it's 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 all cause and effect. But you know, at at some point, okay. there is a cause, whether it's. Big or little, but the 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 hero is rarely the initiator of conflict. He is the one who is called upon to. Re, he or she or they are the ones who are called upon to resolve the conflict. The the villain, the adversary, is the one who takes it. In many respects, is the one who initiates the a, action of that is the 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 visualization of conflict in a dramatic in the dramatic structure, but he's he has a goal i want to get wealth i want to conquer the the world i want to um, kill dumbledore you know it's it's if but if um Oh, what's his face in Harry Potter, had just stayed dead. Yeah. Where's the book? If if when he was a kid, he'd never bonded. Not Harry, but um, Voldemort. Voldemort. Voldemort's whatever his name was, Tom. Tom, riddle. Tom Riddle. Gosh, what a riddle that is.
5: <laughs> <laughs>
3: you know, if he'd never gone looking for snakes or or for the 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 giants. Was it a snake in the in the Hogwarts basement that that. Basilisk. Basilisks are nice. Well, you know, would anything have happened? On the other hand, if if J.K. Rowling hadn't gotten divorced and been dumped on the street in London and been sitting in a in a Starbucks writing in her notebook for six months, she wouldn't be a billionaire, <laughs> and her ex wouldn't be really really pissed.
5: <laughs>
3: so, which is the cause and which is the effect? Who's the villain? Who's the good guy? It's action-reaction. Someone has to set off the action. Nine times out of ten, the, the adversary is the progenitor of the action. The hero is reactive. And out of that reaction comes the conflict.
0: Well, yeah. Let, me, let well, me go ahead.
3: Right. But
0: let me make an historical point, though, that if we go back to the origins of Superman, whose original mission was to uh, improve the world and to battle the oppre- – battle for the rights of the oppressed, which was the vision that originally was proposed before we had truth, justice, and the American way, which means the caped uh, figure is going out – seeking out problems to solve. And yes, for the oppressed to be oppressed, there must be someone pushing down on them. But these are not people with grand schemes to take over the world or commit crimes. They often are not were landowners who put workers under unsafe, unsafe conditions and so forth. Could we not imagine the superhero genre taking a form where the superhero actively goes out and seeks to change the world and evil resides in defending the status quo, in which case he's the, the actor and they're the reactor. But whose world?
3: Is the idealized is the world as visualized by George Bush, the same as the world as visualized by Barack Obama as vi- the same as visualized by the, the Prime Minister in, in Tel Aviv, Well, it's not Netanyahu these days uh by Putin, by the prime minister of the president of India, by some guy on a farm in india it's the 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 challenge is that perception of right and wrong is not an absolute it's its it i think it it there, there it is open to question to, to, to debate. And when you're dealing with a hero like Superman, with the power to bend steel with his bare hands and, and go faster than a speeding bullet and all the rest, that's a scary, scary road to go down. Because what if he makes a mistake? Whose ideal would it be? I mean, the, the interesting hypothesis, if you want to look at it, what if people in Krypton were black or, or Asian? I mean, we're not Caucasian in appearance. What if he came to Earth and it was the exact same thing? If Ma and Pa Kent were a black couple in in Alabama? sure they could be sharecroppers. But if the direction he went, how would the world react? How would America react? How would society react when he jumped up and started defending the rights of the poor in in the south or or the the African Col- the anti-colonialist africans suddenly it's a whole different whole different game than looking at it from the point of view of the Clark can't we know and love and i think that so is at that point does he become the villain depends on which side you're on i think i that that's the 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 fascinating thing about Sorry to go back to the, the hobby horse. The X Men is that drawing from around the world, drawing from every possible cultural and and racial variant that we can get our hands on and play with. Suddenly, it 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 get, th- and this is the difference I think between putting it in two thousand nine and versus. 91, is you're looking at a far different and more complicated tapestry than when Stan started things in 1963, and, and even when I took, took, took them over 10, you know, 12 years later. And the, the interesting question is, okay, when you shuffle all those pieces into the, the mix... What comes out? What does it go? And and playing with it and finding it and and s- f- exploring the implications of the answers sets up a whole new dynamic of of, of challenges and resolutions that, that frankly I hadn't thought of before, and that to me as a writer makes the whole series wow. Suddenly this is fun. It was boring it was getting boring now it's fun because we're dealing with reality not fantasy and that that to me is what makes a good superhero story better not as not because you're watching guys with superpowers knocking over buildings but because you're de- seeing people trying to deal with problems in a world that we recognize as, as our own, and where do they go from here? And if, and perhaps, can their, can the choices they make, the decisions they make, the the actions they, they follow, show us something, we could should consider as a possibility, or file in the in the trash can as no, I don't think I want to go there, but that's that's the fun.
0: So Elliot, uh- I'm sorry, whichever, Um, (laughs) Elliot's been waiting for a while. um,
2: I was gonna ask a a question, which I'm still curious about, about your own kind of personal creative process, like before you sit down at your Selectric or what what (laughs) used to be your Selectric, right? Um, What what inspires you or what collaborators do you usually work with for these types of pieces but what you what you bring up right now is really fascinating about universal truths and now that you have access like more ready access to your your fan base or like fan forums do you do you ever like sort of gauge what they're feeling and try to do the opposite to surprise them or do you find any inspiration there or are, are there any kind of new sort of you know there there are things like mass animation where people are like as as a group creating like a gigantic animation together mm-hmm. on a worldwide basis? I mean, is there something coming down the pipe for comics that you see? Or
3: To be blunt, there aren't enough hours in the day. Yeah. I mean, it's like... We get up at the crack of dawn and then it's like you've got to get the kids off to school and then, oh, God, the dog has to be walked and and you know, we thought we were getting a little puppy and now he's about the size of a Buick. Uh, and we're talking like a 1957 Buick. We're not even talking like a modern Buick. Um, and then, you know, you work through the day and then suddenly the kids are home and you have to do homework and have dinner and put them to bed. And, and you know, the choice then becomes, well, I could work or watch Jon Stewart. Well, that that's an easy answer. Um, it's, I, I mean, I... <laughs> well, only if it helps you, know, helps tell time. No, I mean you you and every so often Beth will stick her head in the door to see how I'm doing and and note, you know come over and whack me on the head because I'm I'm actually online looking at stuff instead of working. Uh they just rudely on enough hours in the day and and quite frankly it's it I feel like I'm too busy wrapped up obsessed in creating my own worlds to to want to impose on people who are having a, far too much fun creating their worlds more power to them and as far as the fan sites go, it's the cruel quid pro, the, the cruel reality is that, that as a writer, I, I find myself looking at them because we don't get no snail mail anymore. <laughs> you know, it used to be every issue you get, the X-Men would get like 100, 150 letters. And I'd, wow, I'd read them, and I'd choose the ones for the letters page, and I'd write them up, and I'd feel, okay, that's a an, a fun day's work, because now I know how they think. And doesn't happen anymore. You know, most, it doesn't seem to be that, that there are letters pages anymore, because there aren't that many people logging in mail. So, ideally, what happens is I... I've got my own website and saying if you want to write me right here and you know I or or AnswerGirl will will get a response out and and that's fun. But then I've got a I've got a novel to write, I've got a book an issue to do, I've got to monitor the kids homework, I've got to walk the dog. Uh, I've got to cover Be- you know Beth's back while she's off doing her work. And um you know, oh my gosh, it's it's midnight. <laughs> How'd that happen? You know, and, and move on from there. It does it did seem easier, you know, centuries ago in the last century. But again, that's when we were on manual typewriters.
0: All right, so Elliot, one one last question. Okay. Um Ask, this oh no. <laughs>
6: Uh, This is sort of going back to the earlier discussion of uh, large continuities and crossover events, and you've talked about how you have a distaste distaste for them and aren't going to be relying on that for your work, but um, how could that, I'm curious about how uh, comics that do use crossover events could better try to educate people about the continuity, because something like Civil War has a lot of interesting narrative possibilities, Mm -hmm. Um, but I tried reading it and I haven't read comics for a while and just couldn't follow it at all and there's really no way to catch up on it that television shows you could always watch series you could always watch season DVDs and yeah. the seasons have an order comics it's all sprawling and it's really difficult to figure out how to follow it in the past um oh, how could <laughs> I guess you have any thoughts about how that could change or how it could better be collected
3: oh there are lots of thoughts <laughs> the 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 challenge is to find a way to tactfully express them
6: mm-hmm. so that
3: when the the bootleg the bootleg tape gets to the editor's desk, I don't have my head handed to me. Um, the problem is that what you're dealing with is a a group enterprise, and it's usually define. It's from. It's a top down enterprise. The editors sit together with with writers that they trust and and are comfortable with, and and evolve an arc, or a year, or a two year. I mean, the, I believe Marvel just had a a summit where the editors went out, sat down at a hotel for two days and hammered out the next two years of continuity. Um, my experience was that the fun would be when you know, I'd go over to Wheezy's house and Walton, she and I would sit down, we'd have dinner and, and just talk. And uh, We'd kick around ideas and structure out the next half-dozen issues, eight issues, ten issues. And then I'd go home and think about it and come back and sit in the office, and we'd kick them around and and evolve them into a structure. Um, And crossovers were something that we basically did because we had to and none of us liked it and we you know we got in we got it over with we got out because what was what was fun what was important was telling was the ongoing story of the X-Men not not Secret Wars 1 2 3 5 19 whatever um, and ideally that's the hope of forever X-Men forever is that, that that's the world we can bring back. And if we do a crossover, it'll be one of those miraculous crossovers where everybody shows up at the X-Men's house and we take four issues and we have a crossover and then they go home. And it's, it's, well it's clean, it's focused, it's, it's quick. The, th- the problem is that, that the more, the wider your scope and the more elements you bring in, the grander The concept has to be to justify it. And each time you have to go, you have to up the ante. You know, if it was down here one season, then the next season it's got to be here and then here and then here. There's got to be more because the readers want more because we've already done this other thing. And after a while, my my concern from the outside looking in is uh, the question, is there a point at which the, it becomes a law of diminishing returns? The more you, you throw in all this, these elements and what comes out the other end is, is not as exciting, it, it, it's just been there, done that. I mean, on the other hand, I could be totally wrong. So, which is one of the advantages of being on the sidelines looking in and not being the one who actually has to come up with the ideas. Um, there's, there's really no way of knowing until you try it. And, and I don't think any editor, or any writer sits down and says, I'm going to write a really dumb story. They want to come up with a really brilliant, gifted, cool idea that they can throw out to the, the, the readership, and they will all go, whoa, this is bitchin'. What the hell happens next and and they'll want to read all fifty five variants of it uh, through all its various iterations and 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 permutations and and results and if it works, more power to you uh, I guess my my only feeling is that that, that what I, based on the the Marvel Universe that I grew up in and the, and the reality that enfolded me at, at, for all that time, enjoy about reading is the reading of Peter David's stories, of Joss Whedon's stories, of, of Len Wein's stories. I don't want to see fifty five you know a half dozen writers shuffling it all together and it coming out as this big tangled melange where it's a little bit of this and a little bit of that and a little bit of something else. I want the pure stuff and this is my personal feeling it's you know and and by the same token, I want readers to to want to read my pure stuff, not the the whatever is, is shuffled together with, with 53 other guys. Um, but the ultimate way of looking at that, the, realis- the ultimate reality of looking at that is, if that's the case, smartass, why don't you go off and write a novel? <laughs> and shut up. And, you know, this is the reality in one world. Build your own world and do it there. Because, again, you go to Hollywood, you look at a film, and very rarely do you have one guy writes the screenplay and that's it. It's one guy, and maybe there's someone doing a little bit of rewriting, or a lot of rewriting, in which case they get their name up there too, and so and so the, secretary and the director throws in touches here and there, and the, and the actors improvise touches here and there. It's a collaboration and ideally it's a it's a gifted collaboration and everybody's having a lot of fun and everybody's pitching together and they're coming out with something that that's whole is far greater than the sum of the parts and other times it's a disaster but you you start out with high, those high hopes and and ultimately, you keep trying till you get it right. And once you get it right, you, you try again and see if, if you can go for a twofer. And that's what brings, I think, brings us back every, every chance we get to our typewriters and tr- to churn out new stories and, and fill our notebooks with lots of s- crazy ideas and ideally creates an environment where someone like me can sit up here and try his best to be pretentious and portentious and impress the living daylights out of you guys so that, wow, it was worth something, you know, and if not, I'll just have to come back next year and try harder. (laughs) Thank you very much.
0: of you are regulars, those are who are not, we have food awaiting for us at Senior House, and you're all welcome along for the ride.
3: So don't ask me any math questions. i oh. Thank you very, very much for coming. So what? I gotta go and let, open
0: up the door. So